Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Laddermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. And today I think we have a pretty fascinating subject for you. Of course, we always have fascinating subjects, but altruism and altruism in the animal kingdom. Yeah. Now, what is altruism, right? Yeah. This uh, altruism is, quote, behavior that benefits others at the cost of the individual, unquote. All right. So in, in this, it's like, like an example of this would be like the ultimate example of this is martyrdom. You know, and at least in uh, in human culture, where somebody like sat, lays down their life to save others. Yes. Or, okay. or you know, or in most examples of martyrdom. Yeah, but like like a situation like the the GI jumping on a hand grenade. Yeah, yeah. To save his buddy. Yeah, he dies, but he saves his buddy. Altruism. Um, I tend to think of firemen a lot when it comes to altruism. I, I do have that classic image uh, mm-hmm. of hero. You know, they're racing into a burning building. But then could you argue that since um, a fireman, you know, that's part of his job, so is that really altruistic behavior? Perhaps not. Yeah, that's the thing when you start, uh, when you can really nitpick altruism and say, like, are you really, because it, it basically comes down to you're doing something good just for, just to do something good, you know? Um, but then people will say, well, did you really do that just to do something good or to feel good about doing something good, you know, or so that other people would see you and say, oh, look how good he is for, you know, laying his raincoat, uh, laying his coat over the rain puddle so the lady could walk over it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Josh Clark wrote a really good article about this. Um, and it's on the website if you guys want to look it up. Uh, is there such thing as a truly selfless act? And he brings up the classic Friends episode in which Phoebe says, yes, of course there is. And so she's thwarted at every turn. And you're oh, frowning at me because you're no, like, no, why are we bringing up Friends? No, I'm, I'm surprised that, that Josh uh, used a Friends reference. I mean, not that I'm not that I'm judging that. Josh always writes awesome articles, but uh, I did not. I didn't expect a, a Friends reference from Josh. Yeah. Yeah, well, oh, sometimes cool. friends can bring you a little science and altruism, apparently. So the take home is that uh, Phoebe goes through like all these different uh, trials. She gets stung by a bee and she thinks she lets a bee sting her, mm-hmm. which seems kind of silly. Uh, and she argues that this is an act of altruism because she has let the bee a stinger. But of um, in, in the Friends episode, Joey argues that the bee will lose its stinger. So it's not actually benefiting the bee. It's hurting the bee and the bee will die. Hmm. So it goes in friends. Yeah, this Phoebe person was completely wrong on that. I mean, yeah, and so she goes through a couple of other examples. And then when we were thinking about this podcast, I was trying to think of altruism in my own life. What mm-hmm. about you? Have you? Did you have any thoughts about it? Um, well, maybe like for like I'm thinking again in terms of like uh, my wife and I's relationship with our cat. Like if our cat gets sick and we spend hundreds of dollars to cure the cat, then is that's alt- altruism? Is that does that count? We gave up this uh, money just to heal the cat or, you know, but I guess we, we enjoy the cat's company. So maybe, I mean, that's what we're getting out of it. Likewise, if the cat brings us the, um, like half of a chipmunk, you know, that she could have probably eaten herself. Is that an altruistic act? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it gets interesting. I, I had the same thought uh, because as, as you guys probably know, I am a parent. So I've, I've thought about that with regard to my kids. You know, when you perform, when you think about things that you might do for a family member, oh, mm-hmm. I would totally take a bullet. You know, this is this is like so common that it's made it into our vernacular. I yeah. take a bullet for somebody. Now the kids wouldn't. The kids are selfish little things, right? 
They so, are, they yeah. are pretty egocentric. Kids tend to be for a while. Um, you know, but is this, is, since it's family, is this uh, an act of altruism? If you were to actually take a bullet or, um, you know, execute one of these quote unquote selfless behaviors. And like you were saying before, it might make me feel good. So right. say I were to take that bullet, but you know what? I'd feel pretty good knowing that I saved my kids. So maybe I am getting something out of it. And then again, my kid is my family and I'm still getting to pass on my genes. And this gets at a part of altruism that, that people are thinking, well, I don't know. Right. Um, and in this, it's kind of like you, maybe you're feeling good because that's like the biological like reward for doing something that is part of your core programming as an organism to propagate the species to continue that genetic line, right? Yeah, yeah, certainly my genetic line. It's, I mean, we tend to think of survival of the fittest. I, mm-hmm. This is. Yeah, which brings to mind like just organisms like, you know, killing each other, beating each other in the head with bones, whatever, just to get ahead. Fighting tooth yeah. and nail, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So biologists have really figured out a way around that, the survival of the fittest when it comes to altruism. And specifically, there's a biologist named W.D. Hamilton, and he came up with the idea in the 1960s, and it's called kin selection theory. He's saying, okay, you know what? Maybe there are examples of altruism in the natural world, and, um, you know, you're going to select for your kin. You might be more willing to perform this behavior if that's your daughter out there or that's your baby bird out there or right. whatever. Because deep down, it's it's all about like, I mean, you, you, you're, you're living and you're dying and in between you're reproducing and getting that, uh, that genetic line to continue. Right, yeah. right. And so people have gotten really interested in this whole um, avenue of research, altruism in the animal kingdom. So there are some social scientists at UC Berkeley who have even gone so far as to call it survival of the kindest. Oh, <laughs> That's kind of nice. <laughs> Berkeley's getting all touchy feely. It, it wouldn't make for a very good uh, reality series, though. Like nobody would tune. Survival of the kind is yeah. Yeah, probably not. Um, and they're suggesting that taking care of each other and uh, cooperating ensures the survival of humans or, or other organisms. And they've even established a greater good science center. Which sounds kind of creepy. I mean, this the title because it kind of brings in like weird connotations of like the greater good science. It sounds like the, the villainous organization from a science fiction novel. Yeah. I agree. So let's talk about some examples of uh, altruism in the animal kingdom. Let's let's talk about okay. humans first. Okay. Uh, well, a great example of this is when someone donates a kidney to someone. It's, uh, and, and if it's an anonymous stranger, I mean, that all the more, right? Because that, that's not even like a kin thing, you know? Because you see plenty of examples of like, you know, um, offering up a kidney, et cetera, to, uh, you know, a loved one, a member of the family. But to someone, but plenty of people just, you know, um, Offer kidneys up to anonymous strangers. You see it all the time. Well, I don't know about all the time, but more frequently, and well, there's it, it certainly makes the news when it happens. I guess. It does. Yeah. Right. So there was a really great article in the New Yorker by Larissa McFarquhar that dealt with this and um, these anonymous donors who are giving their organs. Um, and there, there's even been a website founded called MatchingDonors.com, and it's this nonprofit org that matches quote living altruistic organ donors for patients needing transplants. Huh. So as you can imagine, there there can be terrific uh, family opposition to say, hey, dad, do you really need to give up that kidney? What if I need it later? Yeah. So it's, it was, it's really fascinating. And, you know, I was also reading, as long as we're talking about organ donation, mm-hmm. that um, if a family opposes uh, somebody being an, a, a deceased family member being an organ donor, uh-huh. 
they can override their wishes. Like like they, they have so it they they're are, clicked off on their organ donation card that when they die, their organs will be available to transplant? Right. But if you haven't checked this out with your family, then it can be a, the the organ processing people, the the organ transplant centers would might be a much better mm-hmm. <laughs> name for them. Uh, they A lot of times they will defer to the family's wishes if they dissent. Yeah, I, I'm. It's a little bit tangential, but I thought I just thought it was interesting. I'm I'm all in favor of you know use them, yeah, put them to good use. They're not going to do a lot of good in the ground. Right. So I, I'm going off on a little bit on a tangent there, but let's get back on track. Um, you know, there's a more common example, and that's you know the giving of money. Right. So recently there there was a big project announced, and it's called the Giving Pledge, and this is spearheaded. Um, by 40 U.S. billionaires, uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett among them, and they're publicly saying that they're going to donate at least half of their uh, money to philanthropic to philanthropic causes. Well, that's great. You Altruism know, have, at work. Yeah. What do you think? Well, on one hand, they have all this money, and and you could argue too. It's kind of like if you've got once once you've got so much money, it's like you. Does it hurt to give a certain portion of it away, even half? Especially if you're going to get that nice fat tax break, right? Right. You know, not to mention your, you know, these are these are guys that are tied with major, um, you know, uh, corporations and organizations. So it's like you look pretty good if you go out there and you just give half your wealth away, right? True. Yeah. Yeah. So. So that's one side of. It. But on the other, it's like I mean, I'm not going to be completely cynical about it either, because I mean, I followed like some of the stuff that like the Gates Foundation does, and they do some very good work. So I mean, I'm, it's, indeed, it's, I, it seems hard to quibble. Yeah. Over that, I don't know if it's altruism, but still, they are giving half their wealth away. That yeah. leaves a sizable chunk behind. Yeah, I tend to fall like I tend to to fall in the category of thinking it's kind of like a little column A, a little column B. You know, it's like that you can it allows you to do something like tax breaks, etc. Like it allows you to do something great, but also feel good about it. You know, it's, it's like when I if I make like a measly like you know ten dollar donation to you know a different organization or you know then on one level it's like hey I feel like I did something good no matter how you know small small my part in it. For this, uh, you know, little, you know, charity organization. But then also I do print it out and put it in a folder because I'm like, hey, I can write that off in the taxes. So it's, you know, I feel like it's probably that kind of a, a, a relationship between the two columns with most people. Um, though some people are probably definitely in one category or the other. Right. So cases or instances of, of, you know, pure altruism could be hard to find, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in some form or another. Mm-hmm. Out there in the human kingdom. Okay. Well, so- that's why I think like, like martyrdom in, uh, is often like the ultimate in human culture. Like it's held up as this ultimate example of altruism because it's the idea of giving everything that you are, you know, or, uh, I guess like some. I tend to think of martyrdom more though as sacrificing yourself for a cause. Yeah. Like a, a belief, an idea. And I, that may be not what's in the dictionary, but you know, I think yeah. it's. Well, but a lot of times like that idea though, like carry is at least, the belief is that that idea saves lives or that idea like makes the world a better, better place. Um, even if in reality it doesn't, you know, I don't know. That's just, that's just my thoughts on the matter. So biologically speaking, we've had some thoughts on this and, um, a gentleman named Fran DeWall, who's an Emory primatologist and a biologist is saying among others that altruism could come from a sense of empathy. We feel when other humans are in distress. Okay. Yeah. So this is more, I think, of like the fire, you know, somebody's caught in a burning building type of right. scenario. Or uh, what is the example in Blade Runner? The, uh, <laughs> I don't know. What is the example in well, Blade Runner? Well, the whole thing in Blade Runner is they have to do the the test to see if the um, if the replicant uh, can feel empathy. Oh, yes, yeah, that's right. So it's right. like a turtle on a – it's not like a turtle on a fence post. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it or, or read the, 
this book. That I just read to Android's Dream of Electric Is Sheep. that part in the book? book? Because yeah. I, they're very different, and I can't remember what lines up and what doesn't. Yeah, there is a crazy empathy test. I can't remember what some of the exact questions are, though. Cool. And then like little- they all centered on animals yeah. and whether you, you know, your response to animals in distress. Yeah. And there's something too, like little kids, like up to a certain age, they can't feel empathy really. You know, again, selfish little guys, just kids. <laughs> so, um, some of the scientists are saying that altruism could be instilled when, uh, female mammals are nursing their young. It sounds a little wacky, but, um, DeWall, I was reading this, uh, when he was talking about a different uh, book on altruism that he reviewed in the mm-hmm. New York Times. So anyway, DeWall is saying that um, there's a study in which men and women had more empathetic responses in a lab experiment after they were dosed with oxytocin. Oxytocin, mm-hmm. And this is uh, known as the so-called cuddle hormone. Oh, yes. Oh, you've heard of the cuddle hormone? Um, well, it came up. There was a, there's a documentary series called uh, This Emotional Life. Oh, yeah, you were yeah. talking about that. And there's a whole section that goes into like studying um, some... It doesn't occur in, in, in every case, but in some cases of uh, children who've grown up in like, I believe, uh, sort of like uh, what you, um, Eastern Russian uh, orphanages. Okay. Where uh, some of them have, like, it's very, like, the, like the children there get a very small amount of attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've, not, not all the children, but some of them end up having this, uh, this certain pattern of, uh, of uh, sort of um, emotional dysfunction. And they've traced it to, uh, to this particular, uh, Substance. So, um, you know, somebody who might have a lot of uh, oxytocin would be, you know, a breastfeeding woman. Or, mm-hmm. You know, you get it when you're going through childbirth, and it's also associated with love and stuff like that. So, it is kind of a cuddly hormone. So that's humans. That's uh-huh. that's a little bit of altruism, humans. But what about other animals? Okay. Well, what, one uh, this instantly comes to mind is from, of course, surfing cute animal pictures online, like we all do. Uh, where you have instances where, like, oh, the the cat just adopted some puppies, or the dog just adopted some kittens. Yeah, the maternal instinct just overrides everything, and so that's true. It seems like sometimes animals will care for offspring that's not their own. But what's going on there? Could still be an example of that kin selection theory we we're talking about a little earlier. Mm-hmm. So here's an interesting uh, squirrel study, red squirrel study okay. that that comes to you from compliments of uh, some Canadian researchers at the University of Alberta. And they reported that there are some female red squirrels there that were adopting uh, abandoned baby squirrels. Okay. Sounds sounds reasonable. Except the squirrels were related. Oh, so like unlike with the cat adopting the puppies, like they're actually maybe picking up on some sort of genetic similarity between themselves and the the young? Yeah, and that was really what the researchers were trying to figure out. They thought, well, maybe they can tell versus... um, by how those squirrels are chattering. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some sort of uh, family identifier in that chatting that they're, that they're picking up and able to recognize. So, yeah, they were trying to tease out this connection and how the adoptive mom was able to, you know, recognize the genetic link and act on it. It's particularly notable, too, because, you know, we think of there's so many squirrels out there, but they're actually pretty solitary animals. Are they? Because it seems like they're always chasing each other in my yard. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, well, according to this Canadian book. And the other thing is that they're only going to adopt once. They're, they would only perform this behavior once. Otherwise, it's too much of a cost on the existing family. Hmm. So anyway, they published this research in Nature Communications. I thought it was kind of interesting. So it was altruism by means of kin selection. Okay. And I, I just have to throw this in, too, um, you know, talking about like the net, like our natural, um, like we see a baby and we, we want on some level we want to care for it, right? 
Some of us do. Well, uh, yeah, I think a lot of us do. But like, you, you see that uh, tied into like how they determine which, uh, like, which animals we find cute and which ones we don't. Yes. The cuter animals resemble human infants, basically, in terms of their eye structure and and all that. That's why, like, a kitten, like, small head, enormous eyes, people go crazy for it. You could rob a bank with a kitten, you know. I've never tried to do that. Yeah, don't try that. But I'm just saying you probably could. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, you you definitely. Think about, well, they've got to be cute because, you know, a kitten, a puppy, a baby, to some extent, can be an awful lot of work to care for. So, you know, does the cuteness make up for it? Hmm. Boost their case. Help them survive. Cuteness as a survival factor. We're thinking about. But the next uh, animal we're going to talk about isn't really traditionally thought of as that cute, right? Uh, plants. I mean, some plant. I get flowers or, I don't know, I would never classify a, a plant as cute. I don't know. <laughs> no, neither am I. Um, and there, there hasn't been a whole lot of research done here, but, but some plants are seemingly able to recognize their kin. How they act on that knowledge is unclear. So examples of altruism in action, we don't really have them. But uh, a step before that would be being able to recognize their kin. Okay. Although I suppose if it were a truly selfless plant, it wouldn't matter. And they've also found it in um, fish. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, cichlids? Is that how you say it? The, I guess you find these freshwater fish in aquariums. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen those. Mm-hmm. So I was reading about a study in which um, subordinate females will raise unrelated offspring. And unlike the squirrels, uh, the instances of the squirrels, there is no genetic link. Um, but these, these cichlids are uh, getting some benefits when it comes time to reproduce. So again, is this altruism? Oh. Not if it's necessarily boosting their uh, chances at reproductive success. And plus, on, a, on like a large level, it's kind of like the survival of the species, you know, is is at stake with a with a lot of this. You know, it's like if I if I'm a fish and I adopt a bunch of extra fish, that's more fish out there that are going to potentially be successful, right? Right. I mean, they don't make sitcoms about you know family ties among cichlids, right? Right. So, good point, Robert. Or at least maybe it's been pitched, but it, it's never. <laughs> it just never. They might have produced a pilot, but it, it didn't get. Uh, get picked up and now i have the the theme song to silver silver spoon together but that's a totally different um sitcom yeah so anyway so what about bacteria this is very interesting Yeah, these guys are really not cute so and this is what really prompted uh, my interest in getting robert to go along with a podcast on altruism there's a really big finding on it that comes from a study on resistant pathogens that's uh, published in september 2002 10 edition of Nature, I think September 2nd. And we recently talked uh, in that podcast about quorum sensing, about how it's a mistake to write off bacteria. Mm-hmm. They're not simple organisms, by yeah. no means. I think the analogy that I really uh, was proud of in that one is that they're not like, it's not like a kid that only advanced as far as the second grade, but like a kid who like became like the gr- best second grader in the world. <laughs> you know, Like that's the way I like to think of it. You know, it's like it's a it's in a way it's a lower level. Uh, on, as far as organisms go, but they're really good at that at that level. Yeah. Yeah, you would be scared of that second grader. Yeah. You would bow down. You would give them your Twinkie. Yeah. So here's what a couple of Boston researchers found out about the latest wonders of bacteria. Specifically, they're from uh, Harvard and Boston University, and they may have stumbled on some altruistic bacteria. Really? So what were they doing? They were looking at how antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria develop, Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, they got some strains going on in a bioreactor. They're monitoring, they're controlling, they're doing all of this stuff. And they're not necessarily thinking of altruism. And so the typical scenario we think of when we think of resistant strains, if, if we do, in fact, think of resistant strains, I imagine some of you guys do, is that, you know, a bacterium has a mutation, protects it against a certain antibiotic, and then that one bacterium 
survives and it replicates like crazy and voila, all, all of a sudden you have this population of uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria. Right. Some strain, right? That's really only part of the story is what uh, these researchers found out. There's some pretty interesting things that are happening at a population level. Okay, so stay with me here. The Massachusetts researchers were working with uh, E. coli populations in a bioreactor. And they found that resistant bacterium wind up producing a protein. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the resistant guys, the ones who are thriving, they wind up producing this protein, and it's called indole. I, I believe that's how you say it. And the indole helps out weaker members of the population. So they're pumping this stuff out. They're pumping this protein out. And uh, the mechanism of the indole kind of acts a little bit like a steroid. It's helping the weaker bacteria to bulk up and and fight off the incoming antibiotics. And it also helps these weaker bacteria to um, pump the antibiotic out of the cell. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where's the altruism part? Well, the production of indole by those resistant bacteria comes at a cost. It's really, really, really energy intensive. Okay. So in human terms, we might say they're sacrificing themselves for the greater good. It's really interesting, though. Yeah, it's kind of like... I'm kind of like picturing like the bacteria are like all on like a big camping trip to it with it, with it, with each other. And the, the, the like the one that's uh, become uh, resistant, it's like he's the one that has like all, he's brought plenty of rations for himself. And then everybody else doesn't have enough to eat that night. So he ends up sharing his rations with the other. It's kind of like that, that level of it's like he could survive on his own. Great. But he's diminishing his own advantage by helping out less privileged bacteria in his surroundings, <laughs> right? I guess I, I take the, the point of view of um, that, you know, that master camper is really advancing the skills of the lesser camp campers. Maybe he's like really good at archery and he's showing them uh, how to, you know, better hit bullseyes. You know, he's mm-hmm. guiding them. He's, he's showing them how you know, he's really upping their skills. Teaching them. Kind of like when the cat brings in half like a half of a chipmunk for me. <laughs> She's because I've heard that like the whole thing is that they're they're possibly like trying to teach their humans how to hunt. Or have, like when they bring in a live animal, they're kind of like, here you go. This is how you can do it. You know, here, chase this chipmunk down, you know. So another podcast in which the cat gets mentioned. Is yeah. this going to be like Seinfeld in which Superman comes up in every uh, episode and a cat comes up in every podcast? Probably. I don't know. It's just uh, I was never a cat person until recently. So it's like it brings up just so many questions about the universe. You know, <laughs> it's like, what is this creature that lives in my house and like climbs through a hole in the wall and like sleeps on the corner of the bed. What's it's kind of weird. I don't know. So getting back to bacteria, the um the ramifications of this are pretty interesting. Obviously we want to know what's going on in uh, resistant bacteria. And so indole could be something that we investigate further this particular protein that the uh resistant bacteria are pumping out. Maybe we want to target it when we're trying to figure out the next move um when we're battling these antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria. Maybe it's maybe it's a target. Yeah. In the war, the ever waging war between humans and bacteria. Well, cool. Do we have some, uh, we have some, uh, listener mail to, to read, don't we? We do. We keep getting lefties writing in or oh, righties that like lefties, but mostly lefties and lefty guitarists. So here's an amusing Those, email. The righties that like lefties are really just lefties writing in. <laughs> pretending. <laughs> they like open extra email accounts to do it. Right, I see right through it. Um, so here comes one from Heather and Heather writes, Hey guys, I just finished listening to the lefty podcast and I have an entertaining story about growing up left-handed in a right-handed family. I can relate Heather. You see, my parents tried to teach me how to tie my shoes for years. This is all capped years. Mm -hmm. 
But sadly, if I didn't tie my fingers into the knot, I usually made some sort of squiggly mess, and it would fall apart after a few seconds. So I wore Velcro shoes until a nice old lady that babysat me taught me how to tie my shoes the lefty way. Huh. I was 12. Wow. <laughs> you know, I have to interject real quick. Are you um, going to talk about Velcro and how wondrous it is? No. Well, this is the thing. When I was a kid, there was there was one point where I had the Velcro shoes. Yeah. And then my parents told me, no, you can't wear Velcro shoes anymore. You need to learn to tie your actual shoes. Yeah. Because when you get older, they're not going to have Velcro shoes anymore for adults. That was a big fat. It was adult a big lie because now I like I'll go to the store, I'll be getting some new shoes, and I'll see the Velcro shoes, and I'll be like, I could be wearing those now. I've learned to tie my shoes for nothing, you know. <laughs> anyway, but continue. I had some blue Velcro shoes. They were kind of like sateen, I want to say, uh-huh. and uh, they were great. Got them from Stride, right? Just so the easy. They don't like. I, I I still have kind of hate shoelaces because they you know they always come undone. You're dragging them, stepping on them, tripping over them. Shoelaces can be a fashion statement, Robert. Okay, but getting on to the other other listener mail, we had a wonderful leech story sent in by uh, Skyler, awesome, out of Missouri, and I really I, we just got to share this one. Okay, so we did that podcast on leeches a while back, and we were talking a little bit about you know does somebody have leeches as pets? So. Skylar writes, several years ago, I directed a summer camp waterfront with leech-infested waters. <laughs> Kids would react with terror whenever one of the wriggly creatures got anywhere near them. I decided to keep some in a fishbowl as pets, or mascots, if you will. Overnight, the camper's fear disappeared, and kids would catch little buggers to add to the collection. I was amazed the strategy worked. Sometimes the simplest solutions are the best. That's oh. a question mark, but I agree. Yeah, send your kids to Camp Blood Leech this summer. It's, <laughs> it's a great place. So, he continues. By the time the season ended, I had grown attached to squirmy little guys. So, I brought them <laughs> back to my college dorm with me. That is interesting. <laughs> they required very little care, just a water change every month or so, and a feeding every couple months. My friends thought I was a little strange for keeping leeches as pets until I told them about the feeding. Then they thought I was downright disgusting. Oh, my. You ready for this? Yep. I would pop a movie in the VCR. <laughs> he writes, I, I, you, you gotta set the mood, really. Yeah. Yeah. So, he's popping the movie in the VCR. I like to think it was maybe, you know, Dirty Dancing, Fast Times at Richmond High. After all, it was a VCR. Or he could actually, there's a movie called I Suck Your Blood. Maybe it's that. Is that one. A, like a vampire movie? Yeah, or Blood Sucking Freaks. <laughs> there, there are no shortage of blood sucking movie titles. Well, so he has his movie in the VCR. He is ready. He'd kick back with a soda in one hand and the other hand dangling in the leech bowl. Oh. <laughs> All 28 of the slimy little creatures would attach to various parts of my hand and feast away for about an hour. Then they would drop off and swim away. Allison mentioned feeding them on your finger, but they showed a marked preference for the webbing between. Oh, wow. I love this first-person research. Well, I guess that's probably, I'm looking at that area now in my hand, maybe it's, you know, like, softer? No, he, well, uh, Skylar's philosophy was that um, he reckons that the skin is thinnest there, and maybe that was why. Oh, I bet that's it. Only downside to the process was the subsequent itching and non-clotting. So anyway, all things go well, and he returns to the camp the next summer, and all 28 leeches were still in good health. Wow. And he released them into the swimming area again, much to delight of campers who were looking forward to catching them all over again. So I just oh. thought that was a really good And thanks great to his story. breeding, they're like, each one's the size of like a small doll, probably. <laughs> you know, they're enormous. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I kid, but I'm, that's, that's awesome. I mean, it's like, I, I love it when somebody has like a, like scientific curiosity in something and it goes against the grain, you know? It's like other people may, you know, 
think it's weird to keep leeches in your room and feed them with your own blood, but those people don't know a lot about leeches. This guy has information because yeah. he was brave slash crazy enough to actually get out there and keep them as pets. Yeah. Very interesting. So, as always, we love hearing from you guys. These stories are great. So if you have one you want to share with us, whether it's on leeches or bacteria or altruism, please write us. We're at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. Yeah, and check us out on uh, social media. We're on Facebook as Stuff from the Science Lab, and on Twitter you can find us as Lab Stuff. And we will uh, you know, constantly keep you updated on what we're researching, what we're podcasting and blogging about, and you know, just what kind of weird science uh, stories we're really into at the moment. That's all we got. Thanks for listening, guys. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.